Hello, fellow Rebel Capitals. Hope you're well. So I wanted to dive into a topic that everybody has been discussing. It's the paper, the book called The Great Taking. It was actually a documentary on YouTube that I watched. I took some notes and I thought it would be interesting to go through and react to certain parts of the video because I think he makes some very, very good points that we all need to be aware of. And there's other areas where I have a slightly different view. So let's go right over to the video and go through some clips and we'll think about this. I'll give you my reaction in real time. <laughs> and we'll see if we can come to some conclusions. All right, this is, we've got about, about seven or eight clips here. And I'm just going to let it run. If I think there's something important uh, that he's discussing, or if I've got a take on it, we'll just keep it going. If not, we'll skip to the next part. There's no real structure to this. We want to kind of just let it free flow. And by the way, we're starting at around the 28-minute mark because the first, and I strongly encourage everyone watching this, but the first uh, 20 or 30 minutes roughly uh, are just him talking about his background, which is actually very fascinating and telling his own personal story and kind of how he got uh, to the position that he's in now and how he came to some of these conclusions. So now we're getting to the point where he's talking about the conclusions that he's come to based on all of his research and quite extensive experience in the industry. Change so that the property itself is then transferred up to a higher level and held in pooled form. So you deal with your broker to execute a trade to buy or sell something and you get a representation of an account that shows you what you have in it, but the assets are not held even at what you think is your custodian. It's transferred to a higher level. In the U.S., that is the Depository Trust Corp, which holds all securities in the United States in pooled form. So the brokers themselves are low down in the food chain. Okay, so let's stop it right there. When I was listening to this, the very first thing that came to my mind was a central bank digital currency. Because most people's view of a central bank digital currency is simply just something that competes with the dollar, which is completely inaccurate. It's You guys know this from watching my videos, that it's really about Whose liability is that dollar? Is that dollar a liability of a commercial bank or is it a liability of the Fed, a central bank? Now, I think if you really want to get to the nitty gritty, there's an argument that even if it was a liability of a commercial bank, that it still could be considered or give the central planners the power of a central bank digital currency if there was just one bank. So as an example, let's say we have this complete collapse and the, and the only bank left is JP Morgan and the Federal Reserve. Well, now effectively, we basically have communist Russia where they just had one bank and that was Gauz Bank. And Gauz Bank was basically the retail bank. <laughs> it was also the central bank, you see. So if you just have one ledger or you know two ledgers that are, are being shared by effectively the same entity, because in that case, JP Morgan would own the Fed, right? Because the Fed is privately owned. So who owns the Fed? Well, it's the banks. Okay. Well, if there's just one bank, <laughs> then all the shares of the of the uh, equity of the central bank would be held with the last bank standing. In this case, in this example, it'd be J.P. Morgan, right? 
So basically you got one ledger there. And then I think there's an argument that that would give them the power to implement all of these big brother type of measures that we hear about all the time and we want to push back against. But when you take it even further into the mechanics, you realize that the proposals that they're putting forward right now, whether it's the BIS, whether it's the EU, the uh, the European Central Bank, uh, there's some central banks that have uh, gone a little bit further here. I believe Sweden is one, and even the Federal Reserve is talking about this. They're they're really discussing a tokenization process. Okay, so and this is kind of where most people get lost. Well, actually, most people get lost when they're trying to figure out whose liability the dollar is and why that equals a central bank digital currency. And a, a central bank digital currency isn't a competing currency for a dollar. They just don't understand that it's just switching the liability from one balance sheet to the other. But uh, regardless, coming back to my point, the, uh, the the important thing to understand is this tokenization process. So what this does is this takes all the assets that are in let's just say the United States. And whether it's your house, whether it's your car, whether in this case, what he's mostly referring to are stocks and securities. So these would be tokenized. And then those securities would have to, the, the ownership, if you will, would have to live somewhere. And in this case, what we're doing right now is it all goes to this, uh, central, uh, it's it's basically the central clearinghouse. I forgot what it's called here. The central, I mean, just is the CCP, the central uh, counterparty clearinghouse. There you go. So that's where all of this stuff is held. But this is just an, a very easy transition into a CBDC because if it's all being held here, then it's very very easy to tokenize. And once it's tokenized, then basically all the transactions happen within the cloud, if you want to call it that, but really they happen within the purview of the central planning entity. Because right now, let's say you have a physical title to your car and let's say you want to sell that car and some guy gives you $5,000 in cash for your car. And what do you do? You just give him the title. Okay, great. He's physically got the title. And now let's say that he doesn't register it for a couple months or something like that. Fine. He still owns the car. Why? Because he physically has that title that has his name on it. And that title has been signed over to the new owner. Okay. Not, none of this happened on the cloud. But in this case, the car would be tokenized. And therefore, the ownership of that car would instantly, be without a, a physical title, be transferred from you know, XYZ party to ABC party on this central counterparty clearinghouse or the equivalent of it's, it's basically a consolidated ledger. Here's what we're dealing with. And so I, I don't know that, uh, you know, he touches on a CBDC, but I, I think that I would take it quite a few steps further in going through the mechanics and how, what he's talking about plays in perfectly and dovetails into a CBDC. So this is the purpose to take the collateral up to this uh, central clearing counterparty level. And we know from a BIS 
document that is now over 10 years old that the systems are in place for the movement of this collateral on a global basis nearly instantaneously, especially in a crisis, to be swept to meet the collateral demands of the system, the secured creditors. Also associated with this, we have to understand derivatives used to be bilateral. You knew when you entered into a contract who your counterparty was, and you looked to the credit quality of that counterparty. They were on the other side. In the name of reducing risk, they actually increased risk. They created a monolithic risk because they forced central clearing so that the CCP is the counterparty. On all derivatives contracts, the central clearing parties are the counterparties. Now, what does that mean if the central clearing party itself fails? That means there is no counterparty there to honor the derivative contracts for all manner. They call this a single point of failure, I think, in, in, in the tech world, right? What, what's your single point of failure? So what happens in a decentralized system is there's there, there's multiple points of failure that is true, but any one failure isn't going to be catastrophic. So what you see in central planning is they try to eliminate as many points of failure as possible. And in, in the, what they sell you on is they're trying to eliminate risk. But what they're actually doing is creating far more risk because now if you do have that one thing fail, that <laughs> now you're completely screwed. Right. So then the central planners have to come in and save the day. And basically, David's point is that if they do come in and save the day, then legally these assets could be transferred from the individuals that think they own them to the actual people that uh, would be legally entitled to those assets as collateral. Now, I don't. I watch this documentary, you know, in double speed here at lunch. I don't, I think a lot of people get super concerned about this impacting their house or something like that. Um, maybe, maybe if your house, you know, if you've got, got like a mortgage back security or something like that. Um, but if you own your house outright, I don't think this is something you need to worry about. Now you got a lot of things to worry about <laughs> when it comes to a CBDC, but I don't think that, uh, that this is one of them. When we're talking about that single point of failure actually materializing and then those assets being transferred to the central planners because they're entitled to the collateral. The only, the only uh, assets that would be impacted by this were securities that you would have like at a broker or a, a mortgage-backed security and you know, something like that, that that's been securitized. Uh, your house, the title to your house I don't, especially if you own it outright, I don't think that's really included in that because that really, uh, you know, th that, that's just a, a title that's registered with the government. There is no, uh, th they're not rehypothecating your house as an example. And the argument for this that you hear from the central planners, whether you want to believe them or not, is that yes, there is this rehypothecation, which adds liquidity to the market. And because of this, this is why we need to have these central clearing points. And yes, it's a single point of failure, but it's not that big of a deal because we could backstop it with the central bank. That would probably be their argument, right? As to why we need this stuff and why derivatives are actually a good thing because they add liquidity and they make the, um, 
they make the market function at a higher rate, and that's just beneficial to society at large. Just want to play devil's advocate. There are things, but especially people that think that they have hedged their downside risk in the collapse. There's no counterparty. And the central clearing parties have been deliberately undercapitalized. So in Europe and the U.S., there are discussions by the participants themselves about the possibility of the central clearing parties failing. In the last few years, there have been discussions of this. And if you look at DTC itself, which houses all the securities in the U.S. securities complex and is the... Well, 52.54.2 trillion. So I think you'd probably put them in the category of too big to fail. <laughs> just, just throw that out there, right? And this is the rug pull. I don't know if he uses that terminology specifically, but, or I should say this sets things up for a potential rug pull. Because the argument here is going to be, oh, this is nothing to worry about. Because even if this um, central clearing house fails, well, then the Fed can come in and bail them out through a special purpose vehicle, or they can create bank reserves or provide the liquidity they need. And this is just really a nothing burger. It's a non-issue. Okay, well, fine. But what you're doing there is you're assuming that the Fed will bail. Well, George, why wouldn't they bail them out? And blah, 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 blah. Well, ask, ask David Webb. It's called the great taking. Now, I'm not saying that Jerome Powell wants to do this, but how, who, how do you know who's going to be running the Federal Reserve in five years? I don't know. Do you? The answer is no. How do you know who's going to be running the Federal Reserve or the government for that matter? In 10 years, I, I don't know. And how do you know that person's not going to be a psychopath or a sociopath or a megalomaniac? We don't know. So what we're doing is, is we're just, even if the people that are trying to promote this, uh, this structure are completely benevolent, still we're, we're handing, <laughs> we're handing control on a silver platter to someone that is not benevolent. And the problem with consolidating power is eventually you're going to get someone that is in charge that you don't want to be in charge because that power, the more and more power that the central entity has, the more it attracts people that want to have power over other people. You see, so the greater the power of the government, the more likely it is that you have someone in charge that's a megalomaniac, right? Think about this. If the government had no power at all, like if we went back to the days when the federal government spending uh, as a percentage of GDP is like 2%, 3%, the federal government doesn't have a lot of power, right? Now, the state and local governments would have quite a, a bit of power. But in the, so who would be running for president? Like people that you want to be president because that federal government doesn't have any power. They have a little, but nothing compared to what they have today, right? But let's just flip the coin here and look at communist Russia, where the government has all the power. Okay, now what you're doing is you're setting up a system that you're that the probability is very, very high that you get someone in power that is a crazy, that is a Stalin, that is a sociopath, that's a megalomaniac, someone that has an insatiable lust for that power. It's the simple way to ensure that the people in charge are usually the people that you want in charge. Just make sure that entity doesn't have a lot of power. So getting back here, this, and I don't, again, I don't know if he uses this terminology, but this sets things up for a total rug pull. 
like, okay, we're going to bail you out, bail you out, bail you out. Now let's create all this moral hazard as a result of these bailouts, because now the banksters and the people in the system think that there's going to be a bailout. So why not take more and more and more and more and more risk, right? And I'm not talking about risk from a standpoint of lending that money out into the real economy to produce goods and services. No, I'm talking about the opposite where they're looking at risk reward. And this is one thing that he doesn't touch on here where I, I would have a slightly different view where he talks about all this financialization being a result of money printing. I, I don't know that there's really a good argument for that when you look at the Fed's balance sheet. Now, he talks about stuff that's off balance sheet. So we'll discuss that in a moment. But when you're uh, just looking at the Fed's balance sheet, I think that's a very, very difficult argument to make. But what the argument you can make is by creating all these bailouts, and it, it incentivizes the new money creation to go into financial assets. Why? Why, why, why? Because the risk reward just makes sense. Right? If you're a bank and you're going to lend a billion dollars into existence and you know that the S&P 500 is going to get a bailout, would you lend to the S&P 500 or would you lend to that mom and pop shop? Right? It's a no-brainer. There's way too much risk-reward to lend to entities that aren't going to get bailed out. So if you're going to create a billion dollars in loans, you're going to try to lend to those entities that are going to get a bailout. Therefore, more and more and more and more financialization. The financial economy grows. The real economy, relatively speaking, shrinks. The central clearing party for most derivatives, they have discussion of how they will start over again when the central clearing party collapses and explicitly that they will not put more capital behind it but they have pre-funded the startup of a new central clearing party when one of the existing ones fails. So it's essentially planned and the entire capital base of depository trusts, so essentially the entire U.S. securities complex is housed there and all derivatives. The entire capital is $3.5 billion. $3.5 billion off of $54 trillion. So obviously it's way, 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 way undercapitalized, but I would argue so is the FDIC. And, the, and you know, at the end of the day, the, the central planners are just going to manipulate the numbers to bail out whoever they want to bail out. But one of the arguments that I would have maybe uh, against the great taking is if this is all intentional, which it may or may not be, but if it was, why on earth would they have done the BTFP? Because you want to talk about a perfect time for the old rug pull. That would have been March of 2023. So if you, if they would not have come in with that BTFP, you would have had the great taking. It, it would have played out. Now, I don't know where those assets would have gone, but you would have had basically a GFC 2.0. And we would have seen how it plays out with this central clearinghouse. And, and do they get the assets or do the people still maintain control of their shares? I, I don't know. But, but that would have been a way to find out, <laughs> right? So I'm not saying this isn't going on, but I think that's something that we need to consider. That I think, I don't know that we've got to the rug pull yet, if that's actually what's going on here, if that's the motivation. Individual banks have derivative positions the size of the global. So something will happen to trigger this collapse. 
implosion. I would say the cake is already baked at this time. It's been made to happen because to take interest rates after having kept them at zero for 15 years, which was insane to begin with and did not have to happen, was made to happen. And then in essentially a year to take that back to over 5%. And if you're noticing, they're not stopping. The rates are continuing. And see, now this is obviously pre-Fed pivot. So that, you know, if we wanted to keep increasing rates to, uh, he actually has a very interesting point about velocity as well. He goes back and looks at velocity through history and he shows that when velocity comes down, you know, that the quote unquote money printing, as he uses that term, uh, goes up. But eventually what happens is velocity slows to a point where you have a, a, a crisis. But that's a little bit of a chicken or egg type thing. Because did you know, which caused which? Did the slowing of the economy cause the lower velocity, or did the lower velocity cause the slowing of the economy? It, it, it's a little tough, right, to get what caused what. It's more of a, a correlation there. But we do see the velocity coming down extensively. And a point that he does make along the lines of velocity, which I think is very, very insightful, is that when you see velocity go down, this would insinuate that you're going to have more financialization because there's fewer currency units that are out there circulating. And if there's fewer currency units that are circulating, you would assume that economic output or activity in the real economy was also slowing. Um, I don't know the numbers right off the top of my head, but I would guess that you would see velocity uh, going way, way, way down in a place like Japan. Uh, you saw velocity go way, way down after the Cervasa sickness when we knew, when we know that there was just massive, massive, massive economic distortions that disincentivized entrepreneurs from taking risk and creating goods and services and incentivized people to, instead of start a business, go in and speculate on GameStop. Okay, well, that, that lowers velocity. That doesn't increase velocity. I'll go through what that means for the global financial system. When interest rates were at 5%, if a bond paid $5, to simplify this, let's say it's a perpetuity, which means you don't have to take into account a maturity date. So if it pays $5, it's worth $100 would pay $100 for that because interest rates are 5%. Now, if interest rates are driven down by the central bank to 1% and the bond still pays $5, now 5 is 1% of $500. So the value of the bond goes up fivefold by dropping interest rates like that. And it was even further because they took it to zero. So this is the source of the bubble, the financial bubble that we've experienced, the everything bubble, as some people call it, and the entire financial. That's where I disagree with him. I, I don't think that the Fed taking rates to 0%, um, I will be the first to admit taking rates to zero or having a non-market rate. A lot of people accuse the Fed of having artificially low interest rates. Well, that's true, but I think there's also times when they have artificially high interest rates. But whenever you have a, a central authority trying to basically manhandle an interest rate, you're going to get distortions. You, you, you just are. So I, I, 
you know, would the rates have been zero if we would not have had a Federal Reserve or if we would have not had a central bank? I think there's a pretty strong argument that they would have. Why? Because look at the tenure, right? And you say, George, well, you can't do that because the Fed is doing QE. Right. But every time the Fed did QE, interest rates on the tenure went up, not down. So I don't know that there's, well, let me put it to you this way. We can never prove a counterfactual, but I think there's a very strong argument that rates, at least on the tenure at the long end of the curve, might have been the exact same. And you could say, oh, George, that's impossible, blah, 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 blah. Okay, fine. Well, let's just go back prior to the Federal Reserve. Did we ever have interest rates on the 10-year treasury around where they were? Yeah, many times prior to the Fed. Many, many times. That was without a, a central bank manipulating things. So if you believe that, especially the long end of the curve, is all about growth and inflation expectations, which I think is the strongest argument, then you also must believe that there's a high probability that interest rates would have been the exact same. In fact, <laughs> I think without QE, interest rates might have even been lower because QE increased interest rates. Why? Because the market perceived higher growth and inflation expectations. See? So this is where I disagree. And I, I would completely agree with the conclusion, but I think there were different inputs that got us there. It wasn't necessarily the Fed taking rates to zero, although I will obviously admit that this distorts any manipulation of an interest rate, whether it's too high, too low, whatever it is. It's not going to be a market rate, and therefore it's going to cause distortions. But, but who knows, the, the market rate would have been too, could have been too high. Probably not at zero, but at even 50 basis points, the rate may have been higher than an actual market rate. And again, my argument there would be the long end of the curve. So what does create this environment? In my view, it's all about the bailouts. It's all about the bailouts. It's all about moral hazard. It's about the bailouts that 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 the that um, that uh, led to the moral hazard, which created the financialization, which put us in a position where the central planners can go ahead and do that rug pull. I don't think it was. Uh, I don't think it had a a lot to do with rates being at 0%, although that may have contributed to it slightly because that is an economic distortion. Hey guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Ceresna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options. Jason Hartman, real estate, and Brent Johnson with macroeconomics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow rebel capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. system is basically a perpetuity. So everything is based on discounting cash flows. So all real estate, the entire stock market is based on discounting back theory. 
Right, but it's based on discounting cash flows, not for Fed funds, but for the 10-year treasury. So if QE, as an example, increased the the, the yield, therefore manipulated that discount uh, cash flow rate, it would have done it in the opposite direction that the central planners would have wanted. If this, see what he's doing there, again, this is my view and massive respect to David, but I, I think he's putting a little too much emphasis on the Fed's balance sheet. And if the Fed drops rates, well, damn it, rate like the Fed controls rates. Like they're this puppeteer and they just go over to this thermostat that's on the wall and say, oh boy, it's 68 degrees, a little too chilly. We're going to just dial it up to 70. Then all of a sudden the entire yield curve does exactly what they want. When in, in reality, if you look at it, most of the time, I would argue interest rates do the opposite of what the Fed wants. So uh, to say that they control interest rates to the degree to which they could pull this off simply with their balance sheet, I, I disagree with. Now, can they pull it off with psychology and then by manipulating the law and these clearinghouses, then I, I think that's where that would be my base case if this plays out. Radical future cash flows from companies as well as bonds. Now, if you do round trip on this and you take interest rates back from 1% back to over 5%, which is something like what has happened here, you reverse the entire thing and you have an 80% fall in value of everything, everything, all commercial real estate, the stock market, everything. Now, imagine what happens to you if you own these things on leverage, if you borrowed to own these things. That's the problem. So the entire run-up, the entire bubble was artificial, and the decline will be something like a decimation, where indexes will go to maybe 10% of the peak, because a lot of things will just go out of business. I mean, I think that we have a hard landing. I don't know, 10%, but uh, I think there's clear historical evidence that could easily come down by 50%. Just look at the at the GFC. And um, again, I, I think the, the, the problem here is that he's just allocating too much control to the Federal Reserve from a standpoint of mechanics, not necessarily psychology, right? Because he's saying that, you know, they can keep raising interest rates and raising interest rates, and now they just do the opposite of this. Okay, but look, we had CPI at 9.1%, uh, and they raised interest rates, the Fed funds, to let's say 5%. But the 10-year Treasury yield, when the CPI is at 9%, was only around 4%. So you think that, that if they would have left rates at zero, or if we would have had a market rate, that the 10-year Treasury would have been trading at four? I think there's a strong argument that it would have been trading a lot higher. Okay, well, if it had been trading higher, then there's an argument that the Fed, by increasing the front end of the curve, actually lowered the long end of the curve, which, which, would, which would be an inversion of what David is describing. And I think that's, again, what we saw play out from a standpoint of they increased rates to 5.25%. They did have the fastest. And did the stock market absolutely crash? No. Last time I checked, we were close to all-time highs. Why is that? Because this isn't really a mechanical issue. It's more of a psychological issue. And the problem isn't the Fed's balance sheet. It's the moral hazard that has been created by this implicit or explicit Fed or central planner 
kaput. And this is what happened with the whole dot-com sector when that bubble collapsed. This is what happened in the 1930s. This is what happened to the Nikkei with Japan. All bubbles end this way. And when you step back and look at them, it's like a very sharp mountain peak. It goes into like a needle blow-off and you get a first break and then a second run for the top that fails. And that's where we are now. If you step back and you look at something like the NASDAQ index, the second top that's failing now, which is understandable given that bond yields are continuing straight up. So Yeah, but they're not, right? I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, of course. But when he did this, it is true that the the 10-year treasury yield was skyrocketing. But what has it done lately? It's completely collapsed, even though the Fed has kept rates at 5.25%. Oh, when this begins imploding, the insolvencies will increase due to the level of debt. And there will be an automatic call for more collateral that will be transferred into the derivatives complex in the central clearing counterpart. But see, what's interesting here is what would that collateral be? I'll let you guys think about that for a moment while I take a sip of water. A lot of that collateral would be treasuries. So ironically enough, if you do get one of these collateral calls, what happens to the demand for whether we like it or not, what the market perceives as the most pristine collateral, you see. So you can sit there and 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 look, when the government is making these massive expenditures and deficit spending and the debt's going to 34, 35 trillion, it's ballooning out of control, wartime deficits, nobody dislikes those more than I do. But it, it, it's, 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 it's not, the probability is very low that in the next five years, that causes a debt problem. Now, it'll cause a lot of problems. But remember, in my view, the problem with government spending isn't the debt. The problem with government spending is the government spending, right? Let's just assume that the government could somehow uh, spend and we never had deficits. Would, would that somehow be good? No, because the government spending itself is distorting the economy, you see? So it's not the debt that's a big deal, although it may be at one point in time, at least for the United States. What's a big deal is the spending itself. I always use the example of the heroin addict, right? It is the fact that he's run up $100,000 on his credit card buying heroin. Is the problem that he has the debt or is it the pro- is, or his or is his excuse me, bigger problem that he did $100,000 worth of heroin and now his body and his brain and everything, his soul, is completely ruined. The problem isn't the debt. <laughs> the problem is doing the damn heroin. It's the exact same thing with the U.S. and in a- any government, for that matter. Although the U.S. can get away with it, obviously, for a lot longer. And if what David is saying is correct, we have to acknowledge, whether we like it or not, that if there's a, a need for more collateral, that collateral is most likely going to come from treasuries. 
but the central clearing counterparties are themselves likely exposed to the collapse because I say to people that you may think that you've hedged your exposure to a decline here, but you've done it through the derivatives complex. So the risk is in the derivatives complex. It doesn't disappear. It doesn't go away. It's all there. And the- yes, yeah, this risk has been transferred to one from one party to the other. It's just like FDIC. This is probably an easier way to think about this as far as this concept that he's referring to. It's just that that you go and you deposit your 250 grand with the bank and you sit back like, I got nothing to worry about, FDIC. And what you don't realize is there's whatever, 12 trillion in deposits and the FDIC only has 100 billion. So sure, you're just taking that risk and you're putting it onto the FDIC. But what you don't realize is the FDIC themselves is insolvent if you have a big enough problem and therefore the risk still remains that that's, that's his point. And then that risk would obviously be transferred onto the balance sheet of the government or the the federal reserve or whatever. And he's saying that in the future his hypothesis is that if that risk gets transferred to the balance sheet of the central planners, well, so is the collateral. <laughs> They're going to take on the liability. They're going to take the asset as well. This pain will accumulate in the central clearing counterparties, and then they will fail. And they're basically telling us they will fail. And when that happens, the people that thought that they had hedged their exposure, included the most sophisticated institutions and the pension funds, will have no protection. And the secured creditors will take all of the underlying stocks and bonds, which then gives them control of all public corporations. And once you control the capitalization structure, you then control all of the underlying real things. So, I mean, this is one thing I would argue right here is, is has this not already happened? Here's what I mean by that. In fact, let me look this up real quick. Let me Google it. I think this is very important. Right now, BlackRock has $8.5 trillion, with a T, under management. And here it says they have $9.4 trillion. And I, I forgot where I was reading this statistic the other day. But if you take the largest, uh, let's see. So I'm guessing these are the largest here. You've got uh, BlackRock, let's just say Vanguard, and Fidelity. So based just on this super, super fast Google search, we have got, let's just say 4.5. So we've got, uh, call it 12, call it uh, $20 trillion. Okay. If you took every single share on the S&P 500 and we had a pie chart, so 100% ownership of the S&P 500, I would guess that between these three groups, they probably own 50% of it as far as the shares. So <laughs> it's pretty much already happened, right? Even though we haven't had the rug pull yet, if these three entities, and I don't know if the number is 50%, but I know it was huge. It was like jaw dropping, right? So think about that. If BlackRock or these three entities owns 50% of the shares, they own 50% of the of the S&P 500. How much control do you think that gives them? And so should we be surprised that BlackRock can pass a Bitcoin ETF? Of course not. They own everything. Now it's it's via their share, their uh, investors or whatnot. But and look about look. Let's for a moment assume that shareholders are the actual owners of the company, which they are. 
okay, well, how much pull do you think they have with management as far as the decisions, assuming that they own that type of percentage of the S&P 500? See, so to sit there and say that we've got uh, a great taking, as far as I can tell, we've already been took. Sure, the average Joe or the private entities might own 50%, but you got three groups. So basically three guys that are all the acolytes of Klaus and the Davos types, all central planners, all in favor of, let's just call it uh, this Malthusian narrative and this further and further centralized centralization of power. They're all in favor of that. They already own everything. So I think that's something we definitely have to consider. Okay, let's go back. Oh, there we are. Is something like what happened in the 1930s when there was distress globally everywhere due to debt levels. And you would think that there were no winners, but there were because the banks that were controlled by the Federal Reserve, for example, in the U.S., were slated to survive. 9,000 banks in the United States were forced into failure. The people who had money in those banks lost all their cash, but their debts were not canceled. Their debts were then consolidated into the Federal Reserve System and enforced. So people that were in debt were in trouble. Even wealthy people lost everything. The difference this time around is they're not going after just property that is encumbered by debt. They've engineered this so they can take things, all securities as collateral, from people and entities that have no borrowings against them. They own them clear and outright. Now, let me give you an example. But again, my, my point here is what are they waiting for? I mean, they had the perfect opportunity in March of 2023. Perfect. Why didn't they pull the trigger? I don't know. I don't think that invalidates his hypothesis, but I think it's a question we should all be asking ourselves. As an analogy to explain the horror of this. So you have bought a car and you paid cash for it. You think you're being very conservative. You have no debt against the car, but Unbeknownst to you, the dealer continues to control your car as collateral. You're not told this. The dealer uses your car and all the other cars sold by the dealer as collateral for his borrowing in his business. Now, the dealer goes bust and only certain secured creditors are empowered to immediately take your car and all the cars ever sold by the dealer without any judicial review immediately. When I describe this to people, they get worried about their cars. This is not about your car. <laughs> this is an analogy for what- no, that's, that's, I, I hear a lot of people really concerned about their house and I, I think it's the same thing here that um, there's a lot to worry about, but if you own your house outright, I, I don't think, or your car outright, like, like David just said, this really doesn't apply to you. Although if this happens, I guess it applies to society at large, which would definitely impact you. But if, but if we look at just the direct ramifications of this rug pull, then uh, that that likely would not impact your car or your house if you own it outright. As far as the, now, what he's talking about there, he kind of glossed over it, but I think it's important to highlight when you've got a, a share of Apple at your brokerage, 
he's saying that they could take that and they could lend it to other people uh, or they could use it as collateral uh, to do other types of financial activities. And then if the, the broker goes bust, then what happens is that someone else could have claim to that stock that you think you own or multiple multiple people could have. What he's talking about is basically just rehypothecation, right? So if you've got uh, one, let's just use a car to uh, to take that example even further. If you've got a car and five people think that they own the car, well, if, if the stuff hits the fan, then only one person is going to be able to grab that car and put it in his garage or her garage. So four people are going to be left high and dry. It's basically what he's talking. But unfortunately, the person that gets to keep the car in their garage is not an average Joe. It's Klaus. <laughs> Just to make sure I'm crystal clear on that example. Has been done. It's much worse than this being about your car because it is literally about the entire securities complex globally. So it is not about your insolvency that causes the loss of your assets. It's the insolvency of the people that secretly used your collateral as their property without telling you that or disclosing it. How could this happen legally? It's a good question. And perhaps there is some hope for humanity in avoiding this, in challenging this whole construct. And again, if I'm going to play devil's advocate, it would be liquidity. They're going to argue that uh, it's just like fractional reserve banking. Again, this is their argument. But they'd say, look, the average pension fund, we know that they're not going to be selling their shares of Apple within the next five years. So why can't we just use that share of Apple for something else? And then when they do want to redeem their shares of Apple, then we'll have uh, another share of Apple that we can give to them because these shares are completely fungible. And this increases the oil for the engine, or this just uh, adds more lubricant to the overall plumbing, which makes things more efficient, which makes financial markets more efficient, which makes the real economy more efficient. Again, this is not my argument. This is uh, just me playing devil's advocate. That's probably the pitch that you would hear from the people that instituted this in the first place, regardless of whether their intentions were malicious or benevolent because it is a construct none of this is real there are real things in the world this is not a real thing but they will try to convince us that well i'm sorry you've lost everything it's an elaborate story so yes they have changed law can that be changed and again that's just i think the best way to really view this is through the lens of fractional reserve banking. So yes, you have $100 in your bank, but if that bank goes bust, this is the expression that you're going to get from your bank when you go to to get your $100 or $1,000. Sorry, we didn't have it. Someone else had it and you don't have your money. It's the exact same thing with a brokerage with your shares in Apple, as an example. They go bust and you're saying, hey, where's my shares of Apple? Sorry. It was basically lent out using the same concept of fractional reserve. Challenged 
that's what has to happen. So this was the process. They changed it in the Uniform Commercial Code. This was beginning in 1994. The efforts to affect this actually go back further than that into the 1960s when they began the process of dematerialization of securities to hold them all electronically, which some people were suspicious about then, and they were right to be suspicious. It is clear that that beginning process was literally run by the CIA. And this is not conspiracy theory. The man who was charged with forming the Depository Trust Corp to do this in his own memoir and in interviews discloses that he was a career CIA operative from the time he was a young man. So there was a grand strategic purpose behind this. They've been able to do it because it has been run from the highest levels of the U.S. government. So the involvement of the CIA, then when this construct of the securities entitlement was put into the Uniform Commercial Code, that was pushed through all 50 states, done quietly. That change was made in 1994. So it took maybe 10 years to get it done in all the states. Then they changed the bankruptcy law in 2005, and then it was ready to go with the testing of the Lehman Brothers case in 2008. So there's a plan that's executed over decades to do this. Then they- And again, this is just tokenization, what he's talking about. So I, I don't know where he did it, but he they used some B-roll of a guy holding a paper share of like IBM or something, right? And, and like, a, a, I believe they call them stock certificates. So- for for you younger people, you probably don't even know this ever existed, but for the older folks, I'm sure you remember that your claim on you, that, that stock, that equity that you own in Apple is, is literally a piece of paper that you have like in a manila folder, <laughs> like in your, in your office. And so you say, okay, they made it electronic. And then that goes into a central thing where now all of a sudden, if something happens to that central entity then you don't have that piece of paper anymore whoever owns it is who it goes to from an electronic standpoint well this is just completely turbocharged or this is just on steroids when you think about the tokenization of the economy which is part of the plan for the cbdc if you read any of the white papers from entities like the bis Right. So now we have everything electronic where what David is talking about can come to fruition uh, pretty easily. But it would just take it to the next level if you not only had that, but you had everything tokenized. So now it's pretty much just in a video game. So whoever gets what in the video game, well, that's actually who has the claim on the real assets that are in the economy when it comes to the securities, most likely bonds corporate debt, all these things. Or if your your house, if you don't own it outright. They began a process of harmonization, which was to force this model in law globally. And they did this through the EU. The first discussion in documents in the EU is in 2002. So that's when the process was beginning then in the aftermath of the dot-com bust. And the EU created something they call the legal certainty group. 
And again, that sounds like a good thing, but what they mean is legal certainty that the secured creditors will take the client assets. And they worked at this for years, figuring out how to subvert local law. When you think about it, rights to property is kind of a sacred thing. It's something that all people should care about. And oddly enough, even the people participating in making this happen should care about this in a big way. So therein lies the hope of addressing this. We can come back to that. But the Legal Certainty Group identified the problematic local law. And then it took maybe another 10 years to come up with this CSDR regulation, Central Securities Depository Regulation in 2014 that mandated the transport of the collateral from the local or the national level central securities depository where people think they own their things outright their record of ownership is there and the securities are transferred up to this international central securities depository level which is which is what guys this is just a centralized ledger the 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 unification of the ledger i forgot what the, the exact terminology that the bis uses it's just the the, uh, the the single ledger system or something like that. All they're talking about is a, a record of who owns what. It's nothing more than an Excel spreadsheet at the end of the day, right? So what they're talking about is, you know, just a, a steps of progression. And the ultimate step of progression is a, the tokenization process in that CBDC where everything, the record of ownership and the uh, currency units themselves are on one balance sheet. And that balance sheet is the BIS or the IMF or whomever. And then on to the central clearing counterparties. So it has been done in law. It's been done legally. It must be attacked legally. It must be dismantled legally. The power behind all of this is the private control. It's it's that that would be I, I think it's admirable. And we definitely should try to attack this legally. But th- that's going to be a challenge. Why? Because what you're talking about is, is taking a massive amount of liquidity out of them. And uh, because if they could not rehypothecate those shares, you know, how would you short sell? That, that That's all really short selling is. is. Is they're just lending you someone else's shares. <laughs> it's fractional reserve shares, right? When you short sell. So we wouldn't have short selling would be gone. Uh, what are the trade-offs there? What are the unintended consequences? I, I don't know. Now, I, I think you could argue that if you started from scratch and there was no short selling, why on net balance that might be better. But taking the, the system as it is right now and just just sucking out all of that liquidity, whew, you're, you're going to, but again, maybe that's their, their uh, maybe that's their objective. I don't know, but I think that law would be very, very difficult to pass to where we just make it illegal to have, uh, it would basically be like making fractional reserve lending illegal. What would that do to, I mean, you would, well, you'd, that would make the Great Depression look like a picnic. And again, maybe that's their objective. Of the central banks. And when you look around the world, 
they are all privately controlled. You are not allowed to know, actually, who controls the Federal Reserve and how it is controlled. We know that it is controlled somehow by a set of banks. So there is some kind of an ownership structure that extends through the banks that own and control the Fed. But something like this is done in all central banks around the world. If you notice, any country that has attempted to have a national bank is literally attacked and destroyed. They're not allowed to exist. So it is linked with the war machine, this private control of money, the intelligence agencies, the militaries globally would not be able to function as they are if they weren't linked with this money creation power. We now know that when we were kids, perhaps we thought that the money you borrow from the bank is someone else's savings that they're giving you. It's a zero sum game. I think we now know with the scale of the money created during the COVID period that that is not the case. The scale outstrips any real world activity and it's just created out of thin air. So Yeah, but where he kind of, or again, I disagree with him, is he would lay that at the feet of the central banks and no, nah, it, it, it's, it's the banks themselves. Uh, the, the banks don't need the central bank to create more, more currency, even above and beyond uh, GDP. I mean, the whole euro dollar system is evidence of that. So this is the power that controls everything. They control all political parties, all governments, all the major corporations, the media. And this was the case leading into the 20th century in this period when the velocity of money was collapsing. That is basically a collapse of their control system. The money is a very sophisticated control system because it requires almost no energy input. People are directed by chasing money incentives, but this power through chronic overuse, when it reaches this point where no matter how much money is created, it's not translating into actual economic growth, then it goes into a financial bubble and then you get the major collapse of the whole system. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. It's just, again, I, I think the problem there isn't the the uh, increase in the Fed's balance sheet. It's the increase in the Fed's balance sheet as a result of the bailouts, which create the moral hazard, which then create the incentive structure for the new money creation coming from the banks, not the Federal Reserve, to go into financialization instead of the real economy, because it just doesn't make sense for them to lend into the real economy when you look at the risk reward, when they could just lend it to entities that are likely going to get bailed out if they run into problems. Then they must have a plan to stay in control through that collapse, which will require physical control over people through the reset because the money control system has broken down. So this is why you have a period of terrible instability. So as we were entering the 20th century, velocity money was collapsing, then the Qing dynasty collapsed. It's a global phenomenon that ended dynastic rule in China. Then in the period 1914 to 1918, 
the Turk-Ottoman Empire collapsed, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Russian Empire, Germany was destroyed, and the British Empire had passed its zenith and was really collapsing at that point. So it's a global collapse. And the people that controlled the banking power through that managed to stay in control. And they did it by subjugating populations. It's not about taking their money. It's not about taking their stuff, which they don't need. It's about suppression and subjugation. And that's the lesson when you look at this period in the 1930s. And that is what they have planned for this kind of a cycle again. And yeah, so I would take it a step further there as well. I would say, why, why do they want this stuff? If they're all billionaires, you know, are they just evil? Or they just want to take this stuff and have control over it? I think there's more to it than that. I think the truly dangerous people in the world are the people that actually see themselves as martyrs. It's it's not the people that are uh, sociopaths. It's the people. It's not the people that are just greedy. If you want to use that term, it's the people that are see themselves as saving the world. It's it's the Thanos mentality. If you saw that movie, Thanos didn't see himself as the bad guy. Thanos saw himself as the good guy. I think if you went down the, the list, uh, there's a few people that we could point out in the 1930s. I can't really mention names here because of YouTube. But if you look at the Italians or that experience, that person may have just been selfish, a sociopath. Where if you look at the Germans, well, that person, although he may have had all of those characteristics, being a megalomaniac, I, I think that it wasn't just a lust for power. He had the Thanos mentality where he thought that he was quite literally saving the world, that he was doing God's work. Those are the people that are real danger. And I would argue, even if this is the objective at a material level, it goes way beyond this. And the only reason they want to do this rug pull is so that they can control the system to implement the policies of the Malthusian Marxist cult. You know, if they could somehow implement the policies of Marxism and Malthusianism without doing the rug pull, yeah, why not? It's just, a, it's just a, a means to an end. But I think that we are doing a disservice to ourselves if we think the end game for them is just pure, unadulterated greed, that they just want everything. I, I think it's more than that. I, I think it's, they just, they, they're Thanos. They believe that there's too many people on the planet, not enough resources. And they believe that humanity would be better off if it was controlled by a, a, a group of highly intelligent people, which they consider themselves to be. So I guess there's a component of eugenics in there as well. So it, it's not about owning everything. It's about being able to implement these policies that you truly believe are going to save humanity in the long run. Just like Thanos thought that by snapping his fingers, he was going to save all of the, the life in the universe by eliminating half of it right now. And they've set up for it. So this plan to take all collateral globally and to collapse the system in a kind of controlled demolition where they end up controlling everything, this design was set in motion over 50 years ago. 
It may have had a longer planning horizon than that, but we can see actual concrete steps beginning in the 1960s with uh, dematerialization. So when this is unfolding this way... Again, dematerialization is just another word for a slower and less effective tokenization, which is part of the CBDC plan. Wave of insolvencies, and it creates an urgency to take the collateral. People will be terrified. They will be panicked. And we know that fear shuts down critical thinking. So people will be in panic mode. I've always been interested in what happened in the 30s because of talking about these things with my father who lived through that and what I saw happening in Cleveland when I was a boy. I'd try to talk with anyone who had lived through that time. And I asked my aunt uh, what had happened in the 30s. And she said, well, suddenly no one had any money. And I said, what do you mean? How could that be? And she said, well, no one had any money and even wealthy families didn't have any money. And she knew families in which their daughters had been going to private schools and they couldn't afford to go back to school. When you really look at what happened there, if you close all the banks, which is what FDR did, he suddenly literally closed all the banks and then only certain banks were allowed to reopen which were the ones controlled by the Fed. Well, then suddenly no one had any money. It's not hard to imagine when it's all just shut down suddenly. And then you have the problem that there was a drop in price level, drop in activity, and they kept the economic activity very suppressed for years. Yeah, so this is another thing I wanted to point out, guys, that if if this is your base case, then you also need to be in the, the the deflation camp, like like massive deflation. And I'm not t- talking about just in asset prices. I'm talking about prices in general. So if, if you think that, that we're going to have all of this consumer price inflation, I'm not saying you're right or wrong, but but it is it, it contradicts the hypothesis of the great taking. The great taking would be wildly deflationary. And I know that from family history through the 30s. My grandfather's engineering business, I know from a family letter, by 1936, which was three years after the banks had reopened, there was still no business. Three years later, they managed to get through this, both sides of my family, because they had no debt. People were more conservative then, but it was very difficult. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's the reality of the situation is we like to have this view that as long as we do the right things now, as long as I pay off my house, as long as I just have all my assets in gold, as long as I just have all my assets in Bitcoin or something like that, I'm just going to sit back and watch the world crumble around me as I get richer and richer and richer and just sit there and laugh at people and tell them have fun staying poor. What those people don't realize that wealth is not Bitcoin. Wealth is not gold. Wealth is not silver. Wealth can be your house to a certain extent, but true wealth is goods and services. So in this environment, even if you do get fabulously rich as measured by your bank account or however you want to measure that, right? You'll most likely be a lot poorer. What I mean by that is you may have more wealth, but you'll have access to a lot less stuff. The example I always use was the the Cerveza, right? During that during 2020, 
I made a lot of money. My portfolio went up significantly. But when the whole world is locked down, when you have these authoritarians trying to mandate that you put and inject a foreign substance into your veins just to get on a plane, do you have access to more stuff or less stuff? Answer, less stuff. You could have been a billionaire and you still can't travel because your passport's worthless. You see? even though your portfolio went way up. So it's it's not about that. It's it's about understanding that this is going to, if it plays out this way, it's going to impact everybody. And and regardless of what you own, uh, you, your standard of living goes down unless, I would argue, even if you are uh, the uh, Klaus type, your standard of living goes down, which would back up my argument as to why this isn't all about just being selfish and greedy and evil. It's it's really about them viewing themselves as martyrs and having the balls to do what most people don't have the balls to do. I think that I've I've gone quite I've gone on quite a long time here. I think the main takeaway, guys, with the great taking, when you're trying to get your head around it, just simply think about it in terms of fractional reserve banking. Now, the system doesn't really work that way anymore, but you guys all understand how fractional reserve banking does work. So if you own a stock and it's with whatever, uh, interactive brokers or something like that, what David is saying is that they're basically lending that out on a fractional reserve basis. So there's 100 claims on that stock, but there's only 10 stocks. And when the system collapses, just like as an example, a bank run, and the banks go bust, there's going to be a lot of people that have a legal right to the dollars that are in their bank account, but those dollars are gone because the entity is bust and the entity was lending those out or effectively lending those out in a way where there's multiple claims on that one asset. And the way the legal structure is set up now is for the bondholders to basically get paid back first. So if Silicon Valley Bank goes bust, okay, what what should have happened is the equity holders or the uh, uninsured creditors, which is what you are when you deposit your money to a bank, they get wiped out. And let's say that they can, uh, you know, with their balance sheet, they can get 70 cents on the dollar. Okay, well, the bondholders get paid back first. So what they get made whole, even though the equity and the uninsured creditors completely get wiped out. So what David is saying is basically what you're doing with your stocks is you are an uninsured creditor of the brokerage. Okay, well, who owns the debt? Who, who, who's, who, who's the main creditor that's going to get paid? He's saying it's the central planners. It's the central planners. So if the system goes bust, takes out all the banks, takes out the entities, the, the, the clearinghouses, if you will, then uh, the equity holders, the uninsured creditors, are going to get wiped out. That would be you. And then the assets are going to go to the bondholders, which would be the central planners. All right, guys, great documentary there. I can't recommend it enough watching the whole thing. And uh, we're going to keep talking about this very, uh, very insightful, to say the least. And this guy has massive experience. He's not just some blow Joe, uh, Joe Blow out there. And uh, obviously a very intelligent guy. And there's some points there where I would have a, a different view. But the bottom line is this is something that we really need to pay attention to. We need to think through and we need to take seriously.
All right, guys, enjoy the rest of your afternoon. As always, make sure that you're standing up for freedom, liberty, free market capitalism. We'll see you in the next video.